If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. There's an extraordinary range of copies, shapes, sizes addressed to every branch of society. I even came across in a library in Munich a copy, would you believe, in Braille. That was Chris Bowlby describing the story of Mein Kampf. In terms of the accumulation of power and the exercise of power, this is in many ways the gold standard dictatorship. It's very hard to see who has built up and exercised more power than Stalin had. And that was Stephen Kotkin, author of a major new biography of Joseph Stalin. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. I hope that you've all had an enjoyable Christmas. Our first interview this week, and indeed this year, is with Chris Bowlby, a frequent presenter on BBC Radio 4, as well as being a regular contributor to BBC History magazine. Chris's latest radio documentary is called Mein Kampf, Publish or Burn, which examines Hitler's notorious book in the year when the copyright on it is about to expire. I caught up with Chris recently to find out more. Just for anyone who's listening and doesn't know that much about it, when was this book written and what was Hitler hoping to achieve with it? Hitler wrote this book in the mid-1920s. It was after his failed uh, putsch attempt, the very early Nazi movement in Munich in in 1923, uh, which resulted in the deaths of some policemen and quite a few of his supporters. He was put on trial for treason and the court was actually in the end pretty sympathetic and gave Hitler a platform to to preach his views. And they gave him just a five-year sentence in a prison in a place called Landsberg, not far from Munich in Bavaria, where he had a pretty comfortable time of it. Uh, He had plenty of time to to think about his views. He had uh, colleagues and friends visiting or or other colleagues in prison nearby. And what emerged from this was uh, a decision to put down his views about his life, his thinking, uh, how he might go about uh, seizing political power. 
and this was done apparently in the form that um, he would sit and talk. He was always rather fonder, I think, of talking than writing. And Rudolf Hess, who was in prison with him, would type it all up. And out of that came the first part of this book called Mein Kampf, meaning My Struggle. Was it published straight away then? There was a second part later on, but it came out in the mid-1920s um, and uh, initially didn't actually sell very well. I mean, the Nazi movement itself was struggling throughout a lot of the 1920s. We might, looking back, assume it just carried all before it straight away, but there was quite a long period in the 1920s when it d didn't seem to be getting very far. It certainly wasn't a mass movement. Uh, and likewise, the book itself didn't initially sell very well. It was out there. What, what is intriguing about it, of course, for those who chose to to read it and study Hitler, um, it did set out what he wanted to do. And there are those who say, looking back, maybe more people should have taken it more seriously earlier than, uh, than more might have been done to resist Hitler. So is it quite clear from the book that even in the mid-1920s, he already had a very clear idea of what he would do once he got to power. It's probably wrong to use the word clear in relation to this book because it's a very long book and it's very often rambling. There's a lot of personal stuff in it and a lot of digressions and different subjects in it. However, if you take the trouble uh, to read it, you can certainly see some very strong um, instincts in Hitler's thinking. Certainly there are the basic attitudes which motivated him, constant anti-Semitism, uh, a belief in social Darwinism, survival of the the fittest, and a particular loathing for parliamentary democracy, which he first started observing in the latter years of the Habsburg Empire when he'd been in Vienna. He talked about how he used to go along to the parliaments and really wasn't at all impressed with all the parliamentarians. And added to that is a lot of talk about how you might go about spreading your message to the masses, a lot about propaganda, what these days we might call spin, and a suggestion that you know here's the way you would go about making your way politically, bypassing what he sees, this completely corrupt parliamentary system. So it's it's both a reflection on how things are now, but there is quite a clear-sighted idea of here's how you might go about taking power. But you said it wasn't that widely read prior to Nazis coming to power. Once the Nazis actually were in power, did the book's popularity take off? Well, yes, popularity is maybe not quite the right word. It became what you might be able to call a compulsory bestseller because the Nazis had their own uh, publishing house based in Munich and once Hitler was Chancellor, it was published by the million. Of course, everybody felt they ought to be seen with this book in, in, in the Nazi hierarchy. It was handed out to every married couple, for example, and presented to all kinds of people at all kinds of ceremonies. One interesting side to this is Hitler made a lot of money out of it. His finances were quite a shaky earlier on, but he had a very shrewd idea about how to use his ascent to political power to benefit himself financially. Um, he used to sell his image rights, for example, through associates uh, when his, his face was used on postage stamps. And in terms of Mein Kampf, he was getting royalties and, and it made him a millionaire because so many copies were being produced with official backing, distributed across society. And you can see that in libraries today that have kept copies of this. There's an extraordinary range of copies, shapes, sizes, addressed to every branch of society. I even came across in a library in Munich a copy, would you believe, in Braille. As well as that edition uh, in Braille, there are all kinds of other editions which give you an idea of just how ambitious the Nazis were for the role of this book uh, during the Third Reich. Um, they aspired really to have it replace the Bible as, as a, a book that you would find in every home. They consciously designed volumes uh, to look like the family Bibles that you would find everywhere. They were presented in formal occasions in their attempt to ape religious ceremonies. Um, and uh, other editions that I saw, there was one edition that just looked like uh, a huge leather-bound volume with gold lettering and clasps, a special edition made just for Gauleiters, very senior Nazi officials. And the librarian who was showing it to me said, yeah, this, this is, does have the look of something you might find on a lectern um, in a church, in a cathedral. So it gives you an insight, really, I think, into how the Nazis... Um, wanted to try and use Mein Kampf as a kind of propaganda prop, as something that would really enter into the day-to-day -day culture of the entire society. Of course, many people may never have read the book, but it still had this kind of symbolic presence in so many places, in so many houses, symbolising the presence, if you like, of the Fuhrer everywhere. Was it being read around the world? Did people in other countries learn about Hitler's intentions through this book? Yes, it did have and still does have a very interesting international spread. Uh, the translation of it... Uh 
was an interesting story in itself. In terms of the English language rights and copyright and translation, there were various people who started to take an interest as Hitler became a more prominent figure. Partial versions were published, and there was quite a discussion, I think, in diplomatic circles about how far you needed to have the whole thing to understand what Hitler really wanted. Um, the first full English translation was uh, carried out by um, an interesting character uh, called James Murphy, who had spent time in Germany. He'd also studied Italian fascism, worked for a while in the 1930s for the propaganda ministry in Berlin, and they decided initially it would be a good idea if he translated the whole thing into English. Then in the late 1930s, uh, he sets off from Berlin to Britain to try and find a publisher. In the meantime, the Nazis decide that he's actually not very reliable anymore. They quite rightly believe he's become rather critical. So they say to him, don't come back. We don't want you anymore. And he's sitting there in London, uh, realising his manuscript is still with the authorities in Berlin. So in the end, he sends his wife to go on a kind of undercover operation who manages to recover a carbon copy from someone who'd been involved in the office, brings that back, and then this is published... And the English language rights in the US and the UK uh, have had, a, as it were, a sort of separate existence. It remains in print to this day, whereas the German authorities post-1945 have done their best to restrict its publication. Yes, I was actually going to come on to, to the post-war story of Mein Kampf. So why is it that Germany, is it just as a way of suppressing pro-Nazi documentations and feeling? Is that why they've tried to ban the book? I think in 1945, you have the situation, Hitler himself has committed suicide, uh, but his book, if you like, is still there as a kind of presence, as, as part of that very awkward legacy which the, the occupying powers, as well as German society, have to deal with after 1945. And apart from, if you like, the sort of moral debate about this book, there's also the practical question that Hitler, like any other individual, has to have a kind of legal succession. That is the law. So there is the question of copyright in the estate. That has to be a to someone, even if it is this notorious dictator who's now died. In the end, because the publishing house was in Munich, the authorities, the occupying authorities, into the American zone of occupation, uh, and various court cases decide that the copyright will pass to the Bavarian regional government. And its officials, ever since, have used that power to try and police, if you like, further publications in the German language, in the German-speaking world of this book. And they've been monitoring as, as people have tried to, to publish it and not give permission to try and stop it. Of course, they know that in practical terms, particularly in this online age, you can't do that. People can download it very easily. And it's, it's, not, it's not illegal to, to own it or, or to read it, but they have felt a, a very strong symbolic need to be seen to be trying to restrict the circulation of this book. And Holocaust survivors, for example, have been very vocal in saying this book should still be disapproved of in a very public, symbolic way. And have there been any counter-arguments from people outside of, say, the neo-Nazi fringe who say the book should be published or should be read? Yes, very much. And that's a debate that's uh, going on in Germany at the moment because that copyright expires uh, at the end of the coming year, 2015, 70 years or the end of the year in which uh, it's 70 years since the death of the author, that's the legal provision. That means that from the end of 2015, the Bavarian authorities will no longer have this copyright weapon, if you like, to restrict publication. At the same time, there are those who are saying, look, it's a about time that people, instead of treating this book as a taboo, instead of arguably adding to its attraction on the political fringes by trying to ban it as far as possible, it should be studied, but in its proper context. And the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich, one of the leading institutes researching Nazism, is bringing out an edition to coincide with the expiry of this copyright, which will have the original text, but also have a lot of commentary around it based on lots of up-to-date scholarship, showing the half-truths, the evasions, where Hitler's ideas come from, and also giving a sense of where those ideas led. But it's interesting that that in itself has shown the sensitivity of this book, because initially the Bavarian government said it would back this project, it financed it, give it its seal of approval. But after protests from some Holocaust survivors, it's withdrawn that seal of approval, and now the Institute's going to have to go ahead on its own. And what's the situation around the world now with Mein Kampf? Is it still being widely read in other countries? 
It's certainly being quite widely read. For example, it's a popular um, e-book in in many countries, and it has a curious existence uh, in other places. For example, in Muslim countries where there are more anti-Semitic forces, they will uh, make a point of publishing it and using it. In India, interestingly, it's widely circulated as a book. Uh, It's apparently available. You can buy it as a cheap edition sold to you on the streets of Calcutta, for example, and Indian politicians will quote it. Knowledge of the Holocaust is pretty limited in India, and bizarre as it may seem, apparently it's regarded almost as a kind of self-help book in India, a small man who rises to great things. There is a historical background to this, of course, because there was a lot of Indian sympathy for Hitler uh, at at the time when he was ruling Germany, because he was, of course, defying India's then-colonial rulers, Britain. So, on the principle of my enemy's enemy is my friend, there was a, a degree of sympathy for Nazism and Hitler, and an unwillingness to face uh, what that regime actually did. Prior to this copyright expiry, have people still been making money out of Mein Kampf after the war? That's a, a tricky, very sensitive issue. Obviously, as little as possible in the German-speaking world, because the authorities have tried to restrict, certainly, a formal publication, which would lead to the making of money. In Britain uh, and in the United States, the English-language world, where they don't have control of the rights, those are separate rights, uh, dealt with separately, and the German authorities don't have control over that. Yes, there have been publishers continuing to publish editions of Mein Kampf and make money from it. And obviously, the, the question of what happens to what would have been Hitler's royalties is very, very sensitive. Uh, For a long time, publishers donated them to to charities and academic institutions. Uh, One publisher we contacted for this program said, yes, that's what they're doing, but the recipients have asked for confidentiality. Spoke to the um, director of the Wiener Library in London, a very famous collection of of Holocaust and uh, material relating to genocide as well, who said that they had at one stage been offered this money by publishers in Britain, and it led to an enormous debate, as you can imagine, within the institution. Should we accept this money, or is in some way tainted, and in the end, uh, they they decided not to accept the money. Is my camping used much as an educational tool? I mean, are children in school learning about it? I think in Germany, yes, it will be dealt with in terms of extracts, but no, not as, if you like, the equivalent of a kind of textbook. There is still the sensitivity around it as, if you like, a full publication. And that's part of this debate. Those who want to bring out new editions, but with commentaries, with lots of academic background, will say, well, look, this would be the ideal thing to give, for example, school children so that they can come across it, but come across it in the right way so that they understand it. Uh, It has to to be said, of course, being a pretty large and unwieldy volume, it, it's not the kind of thing that's necessarily going to be very appealing to read. But it, it's interesting. It's also part of a, a debate in terms of how do you keep the idea of, of Hitler and Nazism alive for younger generations? And on the other side, a kind of concern that in many ways, particularly on, in the online age, that Hitler and Nazism, they're becoming kinds of figures of fun. There's a sort of craze for quote-unquote funny versions of Hitler online. And is it more and more important than ever that literally Hitler is taken seriously by the younger generation? So there's quite a big debate about how do you convey what this man and his movement was all about to generations who may otherwise have a commercialised, almost humorous idea of him as a figure of fun. One last question. Having worked on this documentary and now obviously with the copyright expiring, what do you see as perhaps the future for Mein Kampf? I think it shows that this debate about the sensitivities still goes on. People might think that many decades after the end of the war, people might be able to deal with this material as quote-unquote normal. But I think it's interesting that, that there is still this debate about can you simply allow it to be freely available uh, download or in a bookshop? Or does it still always have to be treated in a symbolic way? I think it's clear that in in the German-speaking world, particularly in Germany itself, it's never going to become, or at least not at all in the near future, an ordinary kind of book that you would just see in piles in a bookshop. The sensitivities are still too great. What will be interesting, I think, will be whether those bringing out new academic editions and so on can further the breaking of the taboo, if you like, and have it studied much more regularly and move more away from the idea that this was simply a book you pretended almost didn't exist. That was Chris Bowlby. Mein Kampf, Publish or Burn, is due to be aired on Wednesday the 14th of January at 11am on BBC Radio 4. And as I mentioned before... Chris is also a regular writer for the magazine, and you can read his latest article on wage stagnation 
in the January issue, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's issue, we explore the closing months of the Second World War from a military and domestic perspective. We find out about Charles II's sex obsession, and we meet a medieval king and knight who mirror the legend of King Arthur and Lancelot. You can get hold of our January issue in all good newsagents and, of course, digitally. And now we have a short advertisement break. Do you know a child who's learning to read or about to start? We have just the thing for little learners to support them along the way, the Alpha Blocks Reading Programme. Perfect for children in reception year or to give a head start to younger children, the programme makes learning to read easy and fun. You will get 15 activity-packed magazines and tons of resources to build phonic skills, from recognising sounds and letters to reading stories and rhymes, all delivered to your door. There are Alpha Blocks games, letter tiles, flashcards, stickers, gold stars, a pencil case and a certificate to reward your child or grandchild once they've completed the programme. Anchored in the early years curriculum, the Alpha Blocks reading programme provides a comprehensive step-by-step approach and is easy to use for parents and children alike, helping you both to have fun and feel confident. Give the gift of reading. Go to joinarp.co.uk to find out more today. Before our next interview, I'd like to quickly mention our next reader events, which are taking place in March. On the 21st and the 22nd of that month, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. At each event, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and for tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Stephen Kotkin is a professor of history at Princeton University and the latest biographer of Joseph Stalin. In fact, Kotkin's new book, Stalin, Paradoxes of Power, 1878-1928, is just the first volume in a projected three-volume life of the Soviet leader. It covers Stalin's formative years, from his impoverished youth in Georgia to his decades in the revolutionary underground, his role in the Russian Revolution and the early years of communist rule, and finally, the successful battle for power he waged against his fellow Bolsheviks in the years after Lenin's death in 1924. Professor Kotkin paid a visit to the UK recently, and I had a chance to speak to him about this crucial period of Stalin's development. There have been, obviously, a fair number of biographies of Stalin written in, in the last few years. So what did you feel that you had to add with this book? You know, it's my impression 
that there is no transcendent biography of Stalin in print. Of course, this could be a self-serving impression, but that wouldn't be the first time. If you think about this, we have the Isaac Deutscher three-volume biography of Trotsky, which is an immortal book. That book has stood the test of time. It's beautifully written. It's actually lyrically written. And it's, it's a wonderful read and analysis of a great character. Even if you don't share Deutscher's point of view, nonetheless, you can appreciate the achievement. But for Stalin, what do we have? We have Boris Souverine's 1935 biography, which may be the best one. Souverine was a participant in events and knew Stalin personally. But it stops at a period before the Great Terror of 1937-38 and before World War II. And so as great as Souverine's book is, because he published it in 1935, there's a sense of incompleteness. Probably my favorite one is Dmitry Volkogonov, the former head of the military archive in the Soviet Union and Russia. Volkogonov is great because he puts the war at the center of Stalin's life story. But even Volkogonov didn't do comprehensive research throughout all of the materials that have been released. He did a lot of research. He had a big research team. So I thought, given that there doesn't seem to be a transcendent existing biography, and given the scale of the materials that have been released and continue to be released, that I would have a go at it. Your book uh, tells the story of Stalin's I suppose, the first half of his life. What, what kind of a youth did he have, but how much do you think that shaped his later career? Volume one, which is what I just published, of a projected three-volume biography, takes up the years 1870s to 1928. 1928 is the decision for collectivization of agriculture, or what I would call the enslavement of the peasantry. And so I wanted to explain that decision. More than 100 million people are forcibly, that is violently, put into collectives at great loss of life and great loss of livestock. So that's in many ways the core crime of the Stalin regime. And it's a blow that the country really never recovers from. And its consequences are still felt to this day, 23 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. So in placing that in context, one of the things I did was not solely to examine Stalin's childhood. Let's imagine that there's a great painter or a great novelist or a great poet who produces just transcendent art, art which lasts beyond the time of their life. If a biographer comes along and begins to talk about, oh, the relationship of the artist or the novelist to their mother, or the relationship to their father, or some romantic trysts they might have had or failed to have, we begin to get a little bit uneasy. How could it possibly be the case that the relationship with the father or mother really produced the transcendent works of art? Well, let's put it this way. I had a relationship with my mother. I had a relationship with my father. They were complicated, and I don't paint like Picasso, and I don't write novels like James Joyce. And so we need something else to explain that transcendent production of those people. It could be that their childhoods and their early lives influenced them. Of course, I'm not denying that. I just don't think that those are the most important dimensions to explore. And so Stalin's personal dictatorship is also a transcendent work of art. Obviously not in the moral sense. It's horrific. It's murderous. He's a tyrant. I don't share the values that he upheld himself and enforced. But in terms of the accumulation of power and the exercise of power, this is in many ways the gold standard dictatorship. It's very hard to see who has built up and exercised more power than Stalin had. And so in examining that, I didn't want to reduce it with some kind of mechanistic psychology to his childhood. On the contrary, I tried to argue that the politics, that is to say, Stalin's creation of a dictatorship and his running of that dictatorship formed the personality. So was it more almost a kind of ideology that drove him than his own kind of personal life and personal experiences? Yes, in fact. Stalin was on a trajectory of success. He had parents who were ambitious for him. He entered the Paris school, studied very well, was the teacher's pet, sang in the choir, made his way to the seminary in Tiflis, which was just about the pinnacle of the local education system because the czarist regime refused to allow a university in the Caucasus. And Stalin also did well at the seminary in his first years, and he could have made his way in the society. However, he joined the revolutionary underground, 
and he began a lifelong struggle for social justice. And he suffered for that. He was imprisoned, he was exiled, he was impoverished, he had a very difficult life. In 1917, the year that the Tsar falls and then subsequently the Bolsheviks seized power, Stalin is 39 years old and he hasn't really had a legitimate occupation, a job. His one legal job was briefly a weatherman at the observatory in Tiflis. He lived a life of not just penury, but boredom and difficulty. And so he did that, it seems, because he believed not just in Marxism as a theory, but as an action, as a way to change and influence the world. The Tsarist regime was unbelievably repressive and severe which made the underground in response repressive and severe, but also a level of dedication, some would call it fanaticism, on behalf of the cause. In the end, Stalin didn't bring about social justice, but his commitment to social justice was acquired early and remained his whole life. Do you get an idea of why he first became interested in joining these kind of Marxist political parties in the first place? Yes. First of all, he wasn't the only one. He was influenced as well by his peers. Many of the other bright, accomplished students at the seminary also were attracted to the revolutionary underground. Stalin had a mentor named Lotto Ketsavelli. Lotto was a little bit older than Stalin, not very much older. He had led a similar life. He would subsequently die early. He died young. But he was Stalin's first mentor in the revolutionary movement. And Stalin got engaged with agitation, among workers and with them leading, trying to lead at least, demonstrations in the streets alongside Lotto. So you have a situation where the seminary is oppressive. The seminary, there's censorship, there's confiscation of good books. There's a way in which the seminary denied the smart students their ability to pursue their knowledge in the way they saw fit with freedom. That combined with the attractiveness of the illegal or the banned, combined with the fact that Marxism seems so attractive as a way to fix what were real problems of injustice in the country, and also the sparkling charisma of the mentor, Lotto Ketsavelli. You put it all together, and Stalin could have been attracted to that type of existence. What's interesting is not just that he's attracted to it. Let's be honest. Some students today at university here in Britain are also attracted to radical movements, to rebellion, but they subsequently relinquish this attraction. They move on. They get back on the track of trying to make their way in the society up into the establishment, if possible. So what's interesting about Stalin is not merely that he's attracted to it in the first place, but that it's a lifelong commitment. What do you think it was about him that made him want to take this on, as you say, as a lifetime commitment that possibly could have ended up with him almost wasting his whole life. Well, that's how it was until World War I brought down the existing order. Stalin never would have gotten anywhere near power had it not been for the war. One of the things I do in the book is to describe the world into which Stalin is born. So this is a biography of Stalin that begins with Bismarck, Bismarck's unification of Germany. This may seem odd, but let me explain. Bismarck unifies Germany in the 1870s, now there's a new power on the continent, very dynamic, economically dynamic, and also in terms of foreign policy, viewed as aggressive by its neighbors. Something similar happens on the other side of the Russian Empire, the Meiji Restoration in Japan, also the 1870s, not a unification, but a consolidation of the nation, also followed by tremendous economic dynamism and an aggressive foreign policy. So that's the world Stalin's born into. He's born into a British-dominated world. The British Empire is the great power. But there are these two ruptures, the unification of Germany and the Meiji Restoration. So all of this is going on while some unknown, seemingly insignificant person is born to lower-class parents, a cobbler and a washerwoman, on the periphery of the Russian Empire in the 1870s. Now, having said that, Stalin is unaware of the world in which he's born into. How could he be? He's just a child. But he acquires a sense of trying to make something out of himself. He's constantly trying to improve. He's an autodidact. He's a striver. He's looking to become significant in some fashion. We see that pretty early, the influence of some of his teachers, the influence of some of his parents. It just so happens 
that he becomes significant. He realizes this striving to become a person of significance in the context of being the ruler of the former Russian Empire, now the Soviet Union, but in the larger context of the world where the British Empire is dominant, Germany is the strong dynamic power in Europe continent-wise, Japan and East Asia, and Stalin's got to figure out how to manage Russian power in the world as he's building the dictatorship. It's very interesting to trace the striving to be a person of importance with the construction, a wonderful, unbelievable story of diligence and cunning and shrewdness, construction of a personal dictatorship. When Stalin joined the Revolutionary Underground quite early, why do you think it took him so long to become one of the more prominent members and match up to the likes of Lenin and Trotsky? Let's remember that the Revolutionary Underground was a failure. The revolutionaries were in exile or in prison. Some of them were in European exile, which of course required some subsidies by richer people. Most of them were stuck in Siberian exile or prison. They led a very difficult life. And they were infiltrated by the Tsarist secret police, the so-called Akhranka, which had many secret agents inside the revolutionary movement. By the time of World War I is going to break out, the only revolutionaries on the left who are still at large in the Russian Empire are those who work for the secret police. And so the revolutionary movement is actually a failure. However, the old world, as I said, is destroyed in the Great War, World War I. All these big empires are brought down. Institutions dissolve. Countries dissolve. And it's in that context that the revolutionary movement gets a second wind, as it were. It gets a second chance. Its suppression by the czarist authorities had been successful until they destroyed all of their world. And so within that context, Stalin actually rises up pretty quickly. Stalin is a very significant figure in 1917. He's close to Lenin. He's one of Lenin's closest protégés. Stalin, while Lenin is in hiding in the middle of 1917, organizes the main party congress and is the main speaker giving the political report in the middle of 1917. Trotsky has not even joined the Bolsheviks yet. Trotsky will join the Bolsheviks a little bit after this. And so obviously Lenin is the leader of the Bolshevik movement. There's no doubt about that. But Stalin is a significant figure because of his proximity to Lenin as well as his own talents. When did Stalin, do you think, first display the kind of ruthlessness and penchant for violence that he later became known for? That's an excellent question, and I spent a great deal of time trying to figure that out, and I'll be interested if readers will be persuaded by the analysis that I laid down. One of the things I refuse to do was to take up all the anecdotes, the reminiscences, sometimes 30 years and 40 years past events, when people, after Stalin had become the murderous tyrant, after he had murdered everyone in sight, they looked back and they began to remember episodes and to see his sociopathic behavior retrospectively in those episodes. One of the things I did in the book was not to follow those reminiscences, but instead to trace in real time, when did Stalin's closest colleagues, those who worked with him on a daily basis, when did they begin to notice sociopathic behavior? Now, we're not talking about violence here. Violence is already endemic to the history we're describing. World War I, millions and millions of young lads are sent to their deaths for no apparent reason by the generals who are in charge of this war. Lenin is arguing that he'll shed as much blood as necessary, but on behalf of what he believes will be social justice, not the imperialist war. So the idea of using violence in politics is already there prior to World War I, but then deeply intensified by World War I. So if you look at what happens during the Russian Civil War between 1918 and 1921. Just mass violence on all sides. And Stalin is a participant in that. So we're not talking about the use of violence as a political tool. That's very widespread in the epoch, certainly among the Bolsheviks. Stalin does not stand out in that regard. Zinoviev, Grigory Zinoviev, was as murderous in Petrograd in 1918 when he was in charge, as Stalin was at any time during the 1918 to 21 Civil War. 
We're talking about when did Stalin begin to seem like a threat to his immediate associates and maybe to the revolution as a whole. And strikingly, those who worked closely with him did not perceive him through the early and mid-1920s as a dangerous character. On the contrary, they saw him as somebody of immense talent and capacity for hard work. He was a great organizer, not obviously in the context of running a private company. For example, in a market economy, we're talking about being a great organizer in the Bolshevik dictatorship. That's a certain kind of talent. And he had that talent. He had that cunning and ruthlessness. But the sociopathic behavior was not perceived by his closest associates until the really the late 1920s, they began to wonder. There's a very important episode, which has long been known, but I bring more details to the fore, called the cave meeting. In spring of 1923, Grigory Zinoviev and Nikolai Bukharin and a few others meet in a cave to discuss a document allegedly dictated by Lenin, calling for Stalin's removal. Now, if I were ambitious, as Zinoviev was, Moreover, and if I were afraid that Stalin was a dangerous character, potentially a sociopath, and I had alleged dictation from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal, what do you think I would do? I would act on that dictation and try to force Stalin out of power to save the revolution and even just to save myself. But Zinoviev did no such thing. All he called for was a rearrangement of the structure of the secretariat so that there were others, including Zinoviev, standing beside Stalin, running the regime's innermost sanctum, the so-called party secretariat. Now, Lev Kamenev, who was not in the cave down south on holiday in Kislovsk with Zinoviev and Bukharin, Lev Kamenev was working with Stalin back in Moscow. And Kamenev is an interesting figure because he's the one who has given Stalin the Russian translation of Machiavelli's The Prince as a gift. That happened around 1904, so 19 years earlier. Kamenev knows Stalin for at least 19 years and cannot be called naive if he's giving him the 1869 Russian translation of Machiavelli's The Prince as a gift. But Kamenev rejects even Zinoviev's proposal to counterbalance Stalin's power in the secretariat. So how could a guy who was not naive and knew Stalin that long in the spring of 1923 not perceive personal danger from Stalin if Stalin was an evident sociopath by this time on the basis of his earlier life? So Stalin, of course, is going to murder Zinoviev, Bukharin, and Kamenev only 13 to 15 years later. Yet at this time, in the spring of 1923, that perception on their part is not there. So as I say, one of the things I do in the book is to closely trace these kinds of episodes in real time, the close associates around Stalin, to try to figure out when finally he was perceived as a dangerous character to them personally. Now, obviously, one of the crucial moments in Stalin's life was the death of Lenin. And and after that point, there were a few leaders potentially competing to run the Soviet Union. How was it that Stalin was able to completely outmaneuver all of his rivals? What you have here is partly luck involved and partly skill. Let's recall that Stalin is appointed general secretary of the Communist Party by Lenin in April 1922. Lenin is obviously the leader of the revolution, No one questions that. Stalin, however, is effectively appointed the number two position, general secretary of the party. He's already doing this job prior to April 1922, but Lenin has decided that he wants expressly to create a new position, general secretary, for Stalin specifically. That is to say, appointment of Stalin as general secretary in April 1922. In May 1922, Lenin has a stroke the first of a series of incapacitating strokes. So here a guy is appointed number two, and then the leader, the next month, becomes physically incapacitated, never returns to the level of political participation and leadership that Lenin had exhibited up to that point. And so Stalin has inherited already in spring 1922 the potentiality to build a personal dictatorship. That doesn't mean he will succeed. 
it doesn't mean it's automatic. It still has to be carried out. It still has to be built brick by brick, including, as you mentioned, against rivals. So that's a process I trace very closely in the book, how Stalin went about building this personal dictatorship. So Stalin was in power from spring 1922. People ask me, when did Stalin become a dictator? Well, that's the answer. The party general secretary is the one who alone, among people inside the regime, could receive and send messages from all the provinces of the country. Alone could have contacts with the embassies abroad in the sense of containing the cipher codes, had the liaison with the military, had the liaison with the secret police. So all the power of the regime's communications network is concentrated in Stalin's hands from this early spring 1922 date. He would have had to be a very shy and I guess even a wallflower person not to have tried to build the personal dictatorship whose potentiality he inherited. He would have had to say, oh, it would be unfair. How could I take advantage of this? I'm the only one with all the secret information. I'm the only one who's allowed to send out instructions to the provinces. I'm the only one liaisoning with the secret police. It would be unfair to my other associates, my potential rivals, if I were to exercise this power and to beat them all in the struggle for Lenin's succession. So, of course, Stalin is not a wallflower, and he happily, eagerly embarks on this construction of the personal dictatorship. But the thing we have to remember here is not only control over the apparatus. Moreover, I have a lot of new details on how Stalin exercised that control. That's part of the story. The other part of the story is that Stalin successfully outdoes the others in building up Marxism-Leninism. In other words, not just at the bureaucratic level, but also in terms of the ideology. Stalin fashions himself as Lenin's pupil in what, for the mass of party members, is very persuasive. Stalin's version of Marxism-Leninism is already triumphant in the mid-1920s, in part because he's more successful at distilling and propagating the new ideology. The other biggest, most notable rival to Stalin was Trotsky, who himself was in many ways a brilliant figure. How did he fail to see what Stalin was, was doing and, and fail to stop Stalin? You're right. Trotsky was a brilliant figure. He was the shooting star of the Bolshevik revolutionary movement once he joined late summer of 1917. However, Stalin was in power. Trotsky had to oust Stalin from the personal dictatorship. Stalin had to just do his job, be the general secretary of the party. So it was a much more complicated task for Trotsky to win the power struggle than for Stalin to win the power struggle. Additionally, Stalin was a better pupil of Lenin in the end. Lenin had tremendous tactical flexibility. He was a man of core principles. I don't share those principles. I regard those principles in most cases as anathema. But nonetheless, he held those principles very deeply. He had deeply held beliefs. But he was also able to move backwards or away from some of his beliefs if the times dictated that he needed to do that. He could undergo tactical retreats and he could lead the others in tactical retreats. This tactical flexibility without sacrificing core principles quintessential Lenin, Stalin went to school with this, and he also became tactically flexible. He also became a Leninist in that deep sense. Trotsky, however, was much more of an ideologue. He would stand on principle to the end, even if it was a self-defeating situation. This lack of tactical flexibility is one aspect. The other aspect is that Stalin was able to accept that he was not Lenin's equal, that he was Lenin's pupil. In other words, Stalin never, till much later, we're talking about the power struggle in the 1920s. During the 1920s, Stalin never put himself on Lenin's plane. He always said he was implementing Lenin's will. Trotsky, however, and not Trotsky alone among the rivals, allowed themselves 
to imagine that they were Lenin's equal, that they could debate Lenin and maybe beat Lenin in a debate. Trotsky wrote pamphlets and reminiscences about Lenin during the power struggle in 1923, 24, and 25, where he showed that he had corrected Lenin, that he had been smarter than Lenin, that Lenin had made mistakes. In other words, Trotsky was just as good and maybe even better than Lenin. Stalin never did such a thing in the 1920s power struggle. He assumed himself under the Leninist legacy as the most loyal pupil and implementer of Lenin's wishes. So Trotsky tactically was a failure in many ways and a little bit excessively arrogant. Stalin was arrogant too, but he was cleverer, shrewder about how he positioned himself vis-a-vis Lenin. If you combine those and other aspects of their personalities with the fact that Stalin actually held the levers of power, so Trotsky's job of becoming Lenin's successor was much more difficult than Stalin's, you begin to see that Stalin could have defeated Trotsky. Trotsky never overcame the feeling of shock that he was bested by Stalin. Trotsky never allowed that Stalin was as good a leader as Stalin showed himself to be, once again, within the Bolshevik context. And so we have a kind of diminished Stalin that was produced by the loser in this battle, Trotsky. We have a mediocrity. We have someone who supposedly doesn't know anything about philosophy and ideology. We have someone who supposedly had an inferiority complex, and on it goes. But one of the things I tried to show in the book was notwithstanding all of Trotsky's talents, and he was a very talented character, as Isaac Deutscher made him out to be. Notwithstanding all of those talents, Stalin was a shrewder tactician and a better strategist in the end. And he beat Trotsky, as it were, mostly on the merits. And talking about um, Stalin's relationship with Lenin, one big debate with the the Lenin and Stalin axis is whether Stalin was a natural follower to Lenin or whether he perverted Lenin's dream or Lenin's mission. And which side of that argument do you fall on? That's another question that's very closely examined in the book. There are a great deal of quotations from primary sources on this issue, as well as an analysis, a structural analysis of the relationship and who met whom, how many times, and who had authority granted by Lenin for what particular documents to sign. There can be little doubt that Stalin was, in many ways, a legitimate successor to Lenin. But here, let's remember what we're arguing about. The Bolsheviks have seized power illegally in the country. So those who accuse Stalin of being a usurper, of not being Lenin's legitimate heir, are arguing a kind of silliness because the Bolsheviks themselves have usurped power. So how can Stalin usurp something that's already been usurped? And the answer is you can't. The problem is not Stalin's legitimacy or not vis-a-vis Lenin, it's Bolshevism's lack of legitimacy vis-a-vis the larger trajectory of Russian history. Now, having said that, however, Stalin was not initially widely recognized as Lenin's successor. Whatever advantages he had Whatever things he could point to, it was a lot of hard work and tremendous struggle for him to position himself as the widely recognized heir to Lenin. But once again, the entire regime is a usurpation. Another debate about Stalin centers on his personality. So you have the description of him being quite a sort of dull mediocrity, like you said, like this grey blur. On the other hand, some recent writers have painted him as kind of quite a charismatic Um, roguish type figure. Um, Where do you see his personality lying? So we have to put Stalin in the context of those who were around him. Was he especially a rogue compared to others in the revolutionary movement? Not at all. I go into detail about the others around Stalin. The same way I discussed the childhoods of other revolutionaries who were his contemporaries, I discussed the revolutionary activities of others in order to be able to judge and measure those that Stalin is known for, in addition to verifying whether he engaged in those activities at all. And in some cases, it's exaggerated. In other cases, it bears out. In the context of the time, he was not especially a Lothario. He was not especially some type of mafia kingpin. All of the romanticism about Stalin in the underground has to be tempered by the fact that life in the underground, as I said, was penurious, 
very dull and difficult. However, having said that, he was not a mediocrity. He was not somebody who was a non-entity. He was neither the swashbuckling, romantic, fantastic, revolutionary rogue, nor was he the non-entity mediocrity that his enemies painted him out to be. He was a man who, yes, he had talents, but he also had limitations. He was vicious and vindictive, but he was also charming and a people person. He was shrewd and cunning and smart, but he was also completely blinkered on many questions. He never understood fascism. He would talk about fascism as the rule of the bourgeoisie, as finance capital, as all sorts of nonsensical interpretations of fascism. This is already in the early and mid-1920s. So shrewd and blinkered, vindictive and charming. This is the kind of Stalin that emerges in my book. The whole Stalin, Stalin in the round. When your book, this first volume comes to an end, as you mentioned earlier, Stalin is about to commit what some would see as the greatest crime of his regime. So why do you think he, he does that? Why do you think he suddenly reorganizes the Russian agricultural system with, with such terrible consequences? We have a communist regime. It's an avowed communist regime. They have seized power not to preside over a market economy, not to preside over the growth of a rich peasant class, not to preside over private traders aggrandizing themselves. This is a regime that believes there are stages of history, feudalism, capitalism, socialism, and eventually communism. That's why it's called the Communist Party. First, they need to build socialism, transcend capitalism, and eventually from socialism get to communism. So they all believe that. Every one of the Bolsheviks upholds this point of view, Stalin included, but as well Stalin's critics at the time in the mid and late 1920s. Where they disagree is not on first principles. None of them are in favor of markets, private property, and hiring of wage labor. They're all anti-capitalist. Where they disagree, however, is the methods and the timing of the transcendence of capitalism. Now, they've had a World War I, revolution, civil war, early 1920s famine. The country is just absolutely devastated. And Lenin, in one of his great tactical retreats, introduces what eventually becomes called the new economic policy, which is a grudging concession to private property and markets. It's legalization of a kind of survivalism of allowing the peasants to grow things and sell them and allowing middlemen, traders, to be involved in those transactions. And some peasants do well. One year they have three cows and they work really hard and the next year they have six cows and they begin to hire other peasants to work for them. We would see this as recuperation of the country, a breathing space finally able to out to get out of this long tunnel of destruction and ruin from revolution and civil war. But the Bolsheviks saw this as the growth of a capitalist class under a communist regime, and they were very worried about it. But some of them said, even though we don't like this, even though we don't like the spread of markets and private property and the growth of a so-called kulak or rich peasant group, or private traders who were derogatorily known as NEPMEN, even though we don't like this, if we try to change it now, we will ruin everything. We'll lose the gains of recuperation we've had since the early 1920s, and we'll just get catastrophe. And Stalin shot back at them and said, you don't have the courage of your convictions. Either we're communists or not. Either we're going to transcend markets and private property or not. And so the debate, as I said, was not about some side being in favor of markets and private property and the other side, Stalin, being against. It was whether to do the push against markets and private property, the anti-capitalism, the transcendence of capitalism, the movement to socialism in the countryside right now or not. And so Stalin decided on his own that he would go for it in January 1928. This is one of the episodes described in the book in detail, his trip to Siberia when he announces collectivization. 
Now, let's remember that in 1928, only 1% of the arable land in the country is worked on collective farms. And the average size collective farm is 15 to 16 households. So these are the people who are unsuccessful as private farmers. They can't make it on their own. And they band together in these very small, pathetic collectives. So you do not have voluntary collectivization. It's just not happening. Instead, you have some successful private farmers, and then you have some less successful scratching by private farmers, and then you have a tiny handful of collectives. And so the only collectivization that's possible, therefore, is violent, forcible collectivization, not voluntary, as I'm saying. And as I say, the others argue against Stalin that forced collectivization, violent collectivization, will not only not give you socialism, the collective farms won't actually be come into being, but will lose the stability and the recuperation of the quasi-market economy that we as communists are presiding over. And Stalin, on his own, goes for full-scale forcible collectivization of more than 100 million peasants. Now, his critics were right. Those who predicted catastrophe and ruin, they were exactly right. That's what happened. The country went into a horrific famine. It lost more than half its livestock. Five to seven million people perished from the famine. Many, many more millions starved but survived. However, Stalin felt that you could not continue on the path of a communist regime encouraging the growth of a capitalist class and presiding over a quasi-market economy. And therefore, when he made the speech in Siberia in January 1928, he said, well, why are the rich peasants or the kulak farms successful? Because of scale. That's where you get machinery, fertilizers, agronomy, if you can go large scale. But could we, like America, proceed along the trajectory of private farms growing ever bigger? And he said, no, we are a socialist country. We are a communist party. And so we must modernize to compete in the international system. We must modernize our agriculture in order for it to make a contribution to industrialization. But we can only do it in non-capitalist fashion. And that decision was a decision, as I said, that nobody disagreed on principle, but they disagreed on timing and methods. Now, in the end, despite the uprisings, mass uprisings of the peasantry, despite the massive loss of livestock, despite the massive loss of life, despite even the opposition that arose inside the regime at the highest levels to Stalin's personal rule, he saw this enslavement of the peasantry, this collectivization of agriculture, right through to the end, through thick and thin. And that is a special contribution. I don't think anybody else in the regime was capable of seeing it through. And I suppose that shows that Stalin was very much driven by ideology. Uh, it wasn't, as some people might paint him, just a ruthless pragmatist. He would go out on a limb and take a huge risk. You're exactly right. An older view of the collectivization decision in 1928 and implementation in 1929, the old view was that Stalin was merely consolidating his personal power. He was getting rid of the faction that opposed forcible collectivization, and therefore he was doing it for instrumental purposes. I tried to show in detail a different motivation, a motivation that came out of these convictions that they all had, but he especially felt was necessary at this time. But in addition to those convictions, in addition to a belief system that we have to take seriously, even if it's anathema to us as it is to me, there were geopolitical imperatives that Stalin felt very closely. You see, Modernization is not some type of sociological process. It's not some automatic movement of your country from tradition to modernity. Modernization is a series of attributes that the great powers have. Some countries have steel, and if you don't have steel, good luck, because they're going to have a navy of very powerful boats. They're going to have an officer corps that's trained a certain way. They're going to have trained engineers. They're going to have the masses incorporated into the polity 
a so-called successful mass politics. Those great powers that have these modern attributes show up at your door uninvited and they put their boot on your neck and they start telling you how to live and moreover they may just take over your country and you become their colony. The only way to escape colonization to escape being taken over by others in this brutal, unsentimental international system, is to acquire those modern attributes yourself to be able to compete against those other great powers. So there's a lot of discussion throughout the 1920s that Stalin's involved in of where are we going to get a modern military from? We have no military industry. The Soviet Union didn't have a tank park. The Red Army conducted maneuvers and parades across Red Square on bicycles. You weren't going to win a war against the great powers conducting your maneuvers on bicycles. And so you have the geopolitical imperative to modernize, to compete in this brutal, unsentimental international system. But the modernization has to be, in Stalin's mind, non-capitalism, anti-capitalism, transcendence of capitalism, just like Marx and Engels laid it down in the Communist Manifesto. And he forces the country into this modernization to meet the geopolitical imperatives, but to be true to the Marxist-Leninist ideology. That was Stephen Kotkin. Stalin, Paradoxes of Power, 1878 to 1928, is out now in both the UK and the US, published by Penguin. And that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about Wolf Hall, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.